Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to Faith. It's good to have you in person. It's good to have you if you're with us online. Uh, so who are my get-to-the-airport-early people? Who are my get-to-the-airport-at-the-last-minute people? How does that translate to how you do church? Just asking, all right? Just wondering how that functions, okay? So, um, so it's good to have you with us. My name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and um, we're excited to be launching a brand new series today uh, that we have entitled Pre-Decide. This is a series that we have based off of one by Pastor Craig Rochelle by the same title, and this is what we call a church-wide series. And so basically what that means is that we're going to start a conversation on Sundays as we are sitting in rows, and then we're going to continue that conversation throughout the week in our small groups as we're sitting in circles. And the folks who are going to get the most out of the series are the people who are going to do both. And so if you haven't signed up for a small group yet, it's not too late. Uh, if you're watching online, you can fill out your connection card. If you're in the room with us, the best thing for you to do is after church, you just go out these doors to the right is the welcome center, or excuse me, the community station. You can sign up for a group right there. They've got folks out at that table who can help you do that. But if you're not in a group yet, get into one, because uh, the best way to do this is to do both circles and rows. Now, uh, as we get started today, we're going to kind of look at kind of our tagline or our big idea for this whole series, and it's found in this statement here. Um, and it really, this is how life works, right? The quality of your decisions, in large part, not 100%, but the, the quality of your decisions will determine the quality of your life. Or nuanced slightly differently, you could say it this way. You make your decisions... And then your decisions end up making you. Now, as true as this may be, here's the problem with this. Who knows someone that makes bad decisions? Yeah, yeah. Who's, who came to church with that person, right? All right? So, yeah, don't reach <laughs> All right, whatever. You, you deal with the relationship when you get home, all right? So, um, but just like human beings are notoriously bad decision makers, all right? I'll give you an example of this. I read about this. Woman uh, went to, to McDonald's, get a snack, and you can argue is that a good decision or a bad decision based on what you think about McDonald's. I am a sucker for a McChicken, and so I'm like, good decision, right? So she went through the drive-thru, and they gave her her order, and very wisely, she checked the order before she pulled away. She realized they got my order wrong. So she let them know, hey, you got my order wrong. And they said to her, okay, we want you to pull up while we fix your order. And that's where the good decision stopped. All right? She pulls up her vehicle. She puts it in a park. She turns the vehicle off. She exits the vehicle. She enters the restaurant where she begins to scream and cuss at the staff. She knocks all the stuff off of the counter. She goes behind the counter, starts grabbing things off of the shelves and throwing them at the staff while she continues to holler and cuss at them, right? Then when she's done, before she leaves the restaurant, she thoroughly twerks the staff there at McDonald's. Now, if you don't know what twerking is, I'm going to demonstrate this for you on stage. No, I'm not, all right? <laughs> you didn't come to church to get traumatized, all right? So uh, if you don't know what twerking is, you're probably better off, right? So she thoroughly twerks the staff, leaves the restaurant. Now, all of this is captured on video and audio 
the video, I mean, the, the McDonald's has security cameras. So they get all of this on, on video. You can jump online. You can watch this. But the audio was captured, wait for it, on the 911 call that she made from her cell phone to the police. They got her, you know, she got her order wrong. It's an emergency. She's calling 911. And then she leaves the call open <laughs> while she goes into the restaurant and does all of this. So the police did not have a difficult time finding her, right? So instead of getting a, a meal associated with the golden arches, she got one associated with the silver handcuffs because the quality of your decisions will determine the quality of your life. Now, hopefully none of us have made a decision that's that kind of bad on that kind of caliber, but let's face it, we've all made decisions we wish we could take back. And you go, like, how does that happen? Well, actually, there are a number of factors that play into that. One of them is this thing called decision fatigue. Like, you know, how, you know, how do we make bad decisions? Decision fatigue. Research shows us that we make about 34,000 decisions a day. I wake up. You know, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Am I going to brush my teeth? How am I going to interact with my spouse? Am I going to kick the dog? I get on social media. Am I going to scroll past? Am I going to click like? Am I going to share it? What? I mean, just all day, am I going to listen to the pastor? If I've already tuned him out. All day long, we're making decisions. All right? Decision fatigue is this idea that the greater the volume of decisions we make, as the, as the, the volume goes up, the quality goes down. And so you, the more decisions you make, the, the more likely you are to make a poor decision. It's why I can make good decisions all day long. And then on the way home from that late night meeting here at church, I'm going to pull into the drive-thru at McDonald's. It's decision fatigue, right? Or there's this fear that comes with decisions. Where like, I've, I'm going to make the wrong choice. I've got to make the perfect decision. And so we get paralysis analysis and we don't make any decisions. And as the band Rush will tell you, that's a decision in and of itself. And oftentimes, it's not a good one. Or we'll have emotion overrule logic. That's what happened to our woman at McDonald's. She let the emotion of the moment drive her decision-making process, and she made a decision that she was going to regret for years to come. So in this series, we're just going, hey, we, we realize that all of these things can fall into place. And we, we want to have a better strategy for making decisions because we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. And so what we're saying in this series is rather than waiting till we're in the moment of crisis where we got to make a decision, rather than waiting until things like fatigue and fear and emotions are assaulting us, we want to try and decide beforehand what kind of people we want to be as followers of Jesus. We want to decide beforehand what kind of decisions we would make that would reflect the redemptive work that he's done in our lives. We're going to pre-decide who we're going to be so that our decisions will take us and our lives in a direction we want them to go. Because one of the best ways to live God-honoring, people-lovered, forward-looking lives is to pre-decide. So in this series, with God's help, looking at his truth, we're going to try and pre-decide who we are going to be in six critical areas of our lives. We're going to pre-decide to be ready, 
to be consistent, to be devoted, to be faithful, to be generous, and to be finishers. And each week we're going to take one of these predecisions, kind of unpack what, what would it look like for us to predecide to be this thing, and how do we live that out in our lives. So, as we get started today, let's take a minute and pray, invite God to be part of this, and then we'll jump in and look at it, what it means to be ready. Father, just as we are here today, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us. For folks today who are anxious, I pray that you would bring calm. For people who are mourning, I pray that you would bring comfort. For people who are hurting, I pray that you would bring healing. God, give us hearts and minds that are receptive to your truth. Help us to just lay aside some of the crazy and the busy of the week and to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So um, who here has ever given into temptation and then later regretted that? Show of hands, anybody ever given into temptation and regretted it? Okay, those of you who didn't raise your hands, you might want to regret lying in church when you get home today, all right? We've all done this, all right? I mean, we've, we've all like had been tempted to do something we know we shouldn't have done it. We did it anyway, and then afterwards we're like, man, I shouldn't have done that thing. Now again, how does that happen? Oftentimes, our strategy for dealing with temptation plays a big role in this. Like, for, for a lot of folks, the, the strategy for dealing with temptation is willpower, right? You know, I'm facing temptation, how am I going to do Willpower. And oftentimes, people don't even articulate their strategy for dealing with temptation. It's just, it's there, it's running behind the scenes, and they're like, okay, I'm just going to white knuckle through, I'm going to power, and just resist this thing when it comes. Now, I have nothing against willpower. I'm all for willpower. I would encourage you to try and employ willpower. But willpower enough is probably not, alone, is probably not going to be enough. You see, studies show us that we tend to overestimate how much willpower we have, and we tend to underestimate how much temptation wears us down. Ongoing temptation will wear you down physically, emotionally, and spiritually. See, the trouble with willpower is willpower wanes. And so if all we're counting on is willpower, we're probably going to be in trouble. And so today we want to add a, a couple of additional strategies to willpower when it comes to temptation. Because temptation is going to try and derail our lives. It's going to try and derail us from becoming the kind of people that we were meant to be as followers of Jesus. And so the first strategy we want to look at today is we want to pre-decide to be ready. Look at your neighbor and tell them, I'm going to be ready. Ah, that was awful. Look at your neighbor and tell them, I'm going to be ready. You can tell them, I'm sick of him telling me to tell you what to say, all right? Whatever you want to do there, right? But, you know, so we want to be ready. And being ready simply involves three key, three key decisions. With being ready, I'm going to move the line, I'm going to count the cost, and I'm going to plan my escape. I'm going to move the line, I'm going to count the cost, and I'm going to plan my escape. Now, to illustrate this, we're going to look at a scene from the life of David, a scene where David is assaulted with temptation, and does not do well. And it's because David kind of blew it in all three of these areas. And we're kind of, we're going to dissect the scene, see where David did not do well, and see where we can in turn do well ourselves. 
The scene's a pretty famous one from David's life. It's, it's, you, know, you hear it described as David and Bathsheba. And it's kind of just like this tragic, ugly scene in his world. And it begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, it's a time of year where kings are normally out there expanding their borders. I don't know why. For whatever reason, David decided he wasn't going. He sends a very capable military commander to do that for him. And one evening, David's at home. David can't sleep. I don't know why David can't sleep. Maybe the part of his brain that's usually, you know, like thinking about military strategy is now not doing anything. Maybe he can't sleep just because it's hot out, but he can't sleep. So he goes up and he walks around on the roof of his house. And please don't misunderstand, that's not a creeper move on David's part, all right? It would kind of be today in our world, but in his world, houses, the roofs were flat, It was considered another room. You would actually have furniture up there. There's no air conditioning, right? And so in the evening, you get a cool breeze, kind of cool down up on the roof. So David's up there, cooling off, and all of a sudden, David gets an eyeful, and things begin to heat up. And like that, David finds himself facing temptation. Now, it's important for us to understand, to be tempted is not the same thing as to sin. You can be tempted and not sin. Jesus teaches us that. The writer of Hebrews tells us of Jesus that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So David, he sees this one, he's tempted to let his eyes linger. He's tempted to let his mind wander on what he might do with her. He's tempted to try and create some kind of context for that to happen. But, but, but to be tempted to do those things is different. Now, if David lets his eyes linger, if he lets his mind go to those places, if he tries to set up some kind of rendezvous, then he's crossed over from the line of temptation to sin. And here's the thing with David. Before David ever got up on that roof, David was more likely to give in to temptation than he was to resist it. And here's why I say that. It's because what we know from David in his history, we know that David had failed to move the line. In this area of his life, David had failed to move the line. Here's what we're talking about with this idea of moving the line. Let's say this blue line on the front of the stage here. This is the line for sin. When I cross over this line, I am stepping down into sin. The idea with move the line is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a new line. If this is the line for sin, I'm going to set up a new line a little bit further back. And, the, and this new line, it's a boundary. There's, there's nothing right, there's nothing wrong about this line. There's nothing inherently sinful about crossing the boundary line. Not not like when I cross the line of sin. There's nothing particularly righteous about staying on this side of the boundary line. It's, It's not about right or wrong. It's about wisdom. See, if I if I set up a wise boundary and I don't cross the wise boundary line, 
I'm never going to cross the line of sin. And, and this idea of a wise boundary, it's a biblical idea. Like you go back to the book of Proverbs. Solomon is talking to his sons about sexuality. And he's like, hey, listen, you can find girls who will do things that you want to do that you're going to enjoy but they do not reflect God's design for sexuality or marriage or who he would have you be as a man. And so Solomon tells his sons, he's like, listen, now then my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. He's like, hey son, move the line. Set up a boundary. Now, is there anything inherently sinful about a young man who happens to be in close physical proximity to a, a prostitute? No. Is there anything morally wrong if he happens to walk by her house? No. But so often, we're asking the wrong question. Instead of, instead of it all being about, well, is it right or is it wrong? Is it right or is it wrong? We need to stop and just go, hey, what is wise? And wisdom would have me move the line. It'd have me create a boundary that isn't inherently right or wrong in and of itself, but that's going to keep me from right or wrong. David's up on that roof. And David is more likely to give in to temptation than he is to resist it because we know from David's history, when it came to women, David didn't move the line back. Before he ever got up on that roof, David had a history of crossing the line with women. Like, how do you know that? You, you just read backwards in your Bible. Like, you go back, way back to the Old Testament law. And there's, there's this section where it talks about the kings of Israel and the kind of things they should and shouldn't do. One of the things it says that they should not do is have many wives. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. There's another section that says every year the king is supposed to read the entire law so he's familiar with stuff like this so he knows what he should and shouldn't do. And you read the Psalms and David talks about how he is taking the time to read the law, to hide it in his heart, to be incredibly familiar with it. David knew this. Now, you go back. David has been anointed as king. He has not assumed the throne yet, but he's been anointed. David takes his first wife, Michal. A little bit later, David takes his second wife, Abigail. So now he's got two. Now you might argue, well, he was kind of estranged from Michal, so does it really count as two? Or you could argue, I mean, is two wives really many? Yeah, see, my wife said the same thing. She's like, yes, two wives is one too many. You can't have two. I was like, okay, honey. I'll. And then shortly after that, he marries his third wife, um, Ahinoam, right? So now he's up to three. And then you read a little bit further, 2 Samuel chapter 2, David assumes the throne, and now he's got six wives. And even my polygamous friend tells me, six wives qualifies as many, all right? Not too many if you're polygamous, but it does qualify as many. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of kids you're making there, right? And then you read a couple chapters later, and you read this about David. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives. Now we're adding to the six. Before David ever got up on that roof, he's not moving the line back. 
he's gotten comfortable with stepping further and further and further beyond the line of sin when it comes to how he deals with his sexuality and women. So David gets up on the roof, and we're told that he sees a woman bathing, that the woman is very beautiful. This, this is more than just the temptation of seeing a lady who doesn't have her clothes on. She's very beautiful. Loose translation of the Hebrew. She is smoking hot. All right? David sees this and he's like, what am I going to do? Willpower alone and a history of crossing the line does not serve David well. He lets his eyes linger. He lets his thoughts wander. And then David sent someone to find out about her. He's going to try and arrange a meetup. He doesn't move the line. Temptation comes, and he's already in trouble. Well, fortunately for David, the guy he's going to pump for information about Bathsheba responds to him this way. He says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I would contend, here's, here's what our, our man is doing here. This guy David's talking to, we don't know his name. He is trying to get David, in this response, he's trying to get David to count the cost. He's trying to get David to understand what it will cost him. This guy has seen David. He knows his history. He knows what he's like. He can sense where he's trying to go, and he's trying to get David to count the cost. Everybody familiar with universal man code? No, okay, let me explain. There are certain things that most, if not all men, just intuitively, instinctively know about life. For example, urinal etiquette. Every man knows. You walk into a bathroom with multiple urinals, if there's somebody at this one, you don't go to the urinal right next to him. It's every other urinal. You don't believe me, ladies? Ask your man when you get home. It's every other urinal. You only go to the urinal next to somebody if every other urinal's been full, and now you have to, right? You also know if you're at the urinal and there's a guy next to you, and for some reason you have to talk, you never make eye contact. It's eye straight forward. This is uni every, guy, every guy knows this intuitively. Ask your man when you get home. He'll be like, yep, that's the way it works, honey, right? Okay? So there is universal man code when it comes to relationships. All right? You and I, we're both married. We're friends. You and I, we're both dating somebody and we're friends. We know. Like, if the relationship with the person we're with now ends, the, the person, like, if we're friends, the, the other, that, that, she's off limits to me. My girl's off limits to you. You just know. Universal Man Code tells you, you don't date your friend's female. You don't get with your buddy's baby. You don't connect with your, your, your friend's woman. It's just it's not something you do. It doesn't matter if you and I are both divorced. Like, your ex-wife, your ex-girlfriend, she's out of bounds for me. Like even if I was to die and your wife was to die, you would think twice about whether or not you would ask my surviving spouse out because just every man knows you just this is this is dangerous ground. You don't tread on this. The man comes to David and he says, "Hey, this is Bathsheba. This is Uriah's wife." You read a little bit further in Samuel. There, you have this list of David's mighty men, guys who are fiercely loyal to David, 
these wicked warriors and whom David built his kingdom on their shoulders. One of the guys on the list is Uriah the Hittite. This is one of David's closest friends, one of his biggest supporters. And the guy is saying to him, David, you can't go there. This is Uriah's wife. You are violating man code. Do you have any idea what this will cost you? And if you know David's story, you know it costs him. You know it costs him the lives of three of his sons. It costs him one of his daughter's purity and emotional stability. It costs him the respect of his family, of his court, and of his kingdom. If somebody could have gotten David before he's in the midst of temptation to sit down and to thoroughly think through what one night of passion is going to cost him, David would have been so much better suited to deal with temptation than to simply do so in willpower alone. So David, he sends the messenger to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. And she went back home, the woman conceived, and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. We see the last fast factor that David misses right here. David failed to plan. Now, I don't mean David didn't have any kind of plan. He had a plan. It was a plan to satisfy his own selfish desires. But he failed to plan an escape. And this, this, is, this is the third critical thing we've got to do. When temptation comes upon us, we want it, before it ever gets here, we want to have thought through, okay, when this thing that I know I struggle with comes, what am I going to do to help me get out of this? And it is so much more helpful to have thought this through before the temptation comes than to wait until it's upon us. Because when temptation is upon us, there are emotions that want to be obeyed, hormones that want to be satisfied, hungers that want to be fed, you know, pains that want to be relieved, desires that want to be fulfilled. All of these things are running high in the midst of temptation. And things like critical thinking and forward vision and thoughtfulness about God's truth, in the middle of a temptation, all of this is running low. Waiting until temptation is upon us, it's a bad idea. Before temptation comes, and when we can take full advantage of these kind of factors in our lives, that's the time to think about our escape as opposed to waiting until this kind of stuff is assaulting our senses. Because here's the deal. An escape is always possible. It is always there. Paul tells us so. As Paul is talking about temptation, Paul says, but when you are tempted, he, he being God, will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's an escape there. People who are ready don't wait until they're getting hammered with this stuff. While they have full access to these things, they plan the escape. Because they've figured out the quality of our decisions, more often than not, determines the quality of our lives. We make our decisions, and then our decisions, in turn, make us. 
Temptation seeks to derail us from becoming the kind of people who we long to be as followers of Jesus, but doesn't have to. We can be ready for it. We don't have to just do this with willpower alone. We can be ready as well. So here's your homework for this week. This week, I want to encourage you to try and carve out some time where you can be by yourself, where, where it's quiet, where you can take full advantage of forward thinking and critical thinking and, and, and God's truth. And I want you to work through four questions, four simple questions. Here's number one. Where in my life am I most likely to face temptation? Not, you, not the person next to you, not me. For you personally, where are you going to face temptation? It, it may be, you know, like David, it may be in, in, with regards to your sexuality. It may be with emotions in your life, be it anger or depression or anxiety or fear. It may be with your money or your possessions. It may be in a key relationship with your spouse, with your kid, with a friend. For you, where are you most likely to face temptation? And if you have more than one thing on your list, that makes you human. All right? Put together your list. Where, where are the top areas where I'm going to wrestle? All right? And then ask yourself this next. Where do I need to move the line? For you personally, what would wisdom look like to set up a boundary back from the line of sin? Not because you have to, just because it would be wise. Now, for me, sexuality is, is, is a temptation. And so there are certain things where I've, I've moved the line and I've said, hey, I don't have to do it this way, but I think it's a wise thing for me to do it this way. So I, I work really hard not to meet with women in private places. If I'm going to meet with you here at church, there's going to be somebody else in the building. Or, you know, my preference is to meet with you at Panera Bread because then we're out in public, right? I don't do marriage counseling with just the female and the couple. I won't do that. There's like my phone, my computer, uh, my email, my wife and the leadership team here at the church, they have all, full access to those. They can get in there and see that stuff anytime they want. Not because I have to, not because there's something right or wrong with that. I've just decided, hey, this is a wise place to set up the fence. Where do you need to move the line? Next question to ask, what will this cost me? Think about the area where you're tempted most, if you were to step over the line and down into sin, what is that going to cost you? And I would encourage you to put together as exhaustive a list as you can. If like David, I was to step over the line and into sin, it would cost me my marriage, it would cost me my relationship with my kids, it would cost me my relationship with my granddaughter, it should cost me my job, it would cost us the health of our church, it would cost me your respect, it would cost me my credentialing as a pastor, my financial stability, I can just keep going. I don't care how smoking hot she is, I've done the math, it's not worth it, it's a bad deal. What will it cost you? And then finally, what's my plan for escape? Again, I would think about beforehand, when temptation comes, what are some of the things you're going to do that are designed to help you get away from this? So for me, one of the things that I do is I go, hey, if, if I sense something funky between me and a woman who's not my wife, or just something funky towards me from a woman who's not my wife, there are men who I've already have, they know who they are, who I'm going to call and tell. I've done this in the past, and with all this going on, I'm probably going to have to do it again in the future, right? All right. So, um, 
But it's just like, hey, I figured out. You keep something in the dark, it has pull on you. You bring it out of the darkness into the light, it loses some of its power. And so there's guys who I'm just like, hey, this doesn't feel right. I want you to know. And I tell them, what's your plan of escape? See, again, one last time. The quality of our decisions so often is going to determine the quality of our lives. We make our decisions and then in turn our decisions make us. Temptation would seek to derail us. Doesn't have to. We can add to our willpower this idea of I'm going to be ready. Before it ever comes, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to move the line. I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to plan an escape. Now, when we began, I said we're going to talk about two strategies. Second strategy, really quickly, is this. I'm not going to meet temptation in my power alone. This idea that I'm going to be smart enough and strong enough to deal with all that comes to me in my power alone. I, I don't know how it works for you. That doesn't work for me. The good news is that none of us have to do this in our power alone. God is eager to send his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to empower us as we face temptation. And really, God's Spirit taking up residence inside of us, that begins when we commit our lives to Christ. And so I want to invite everybody to stand up right now. Before we move into worship and close things down this morning, we're going to pray. And if you're watching online or you're here in the room and you know your wisdom and power alone aren't enough to get this done because it hasn't been working, I want to invite you to pray with me to embrace the forgiveness and the life of Jesus, to invite God's Spirit to take up residence inside of you so you can do this with someone instead of by yourself. Father, thank you that we are not alone, that you love us, and that you want to partner with us in this. Father, some of us today, we just want to come and we want to confess in all kinds of ways, temptation is one and we have given in. We have sinned. Forgive us, please. We can't make this right ourselves. We need Jesus. In this moment, we want to surrender all of who we are to him. We want to put our faith, our hope, our trust in his life, his death, and his resurrection. We want to invite the Holy Spirit, to take up residence inside of us. Help us change who we are and where we're going. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.